Hello, happy holidays, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, I cannot complain at all. We've got snow here. We have beautiful weather, beautiful Christmas markets, and I am enjoying the festivities of the season. This is my favorite time of year. Awesome. So what do we have lined up this week? This week's case takes place in Scottswood, an East England suburb of Newcastle in 1968. In the 1960s, Newcastle was a decaying city brought to the brink of ruin by dying mining and shipbuilding industries. It had the highest crime and alcoholism rates and one of the highest rates of unemployment out of every city in Britain. So Newcastle is a really, really fascinating city. It's the largest city in in northwest England or in northeast England. It was originally a Roman settlement called Pons Aelius. It actually got the name Newcastle because there was a new castle built there by William the Conqueror's eldest son, Robert Curthos. And it was one of the world's largest shipbuilding and repair centers during the Industrial Revolution. So as you pointed out, the decline of that definitely led to almost a a depression of sorts for the, the city. Now, the people of this area are lovingly referred to as Geordies. Geordies have a very unique accent. There are some quite famous I don't know if you have ever heard of Ant and Deck, but they're this duo that they they do. Britain's Got Talent, they host it. They host I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. They've done some kids shows before. They're a really lovable duo. But even more famous, Mr. Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean himself, hails from Newcastle. So it's, it's a pretty... Pretty well-to-do now city. It's definitely gotten its feet back under itself from the time that you're talking about. It hasn't quite recovered as far as population goes. It was at its largest in the early 1950s, but it is, it's getting closer again. It's seeing a bit of a resurgence in the last 20 years. It's grown by about 25%. It's a pretty multi-ethnic city. And really, it's just... It's an absolutely beautiful area if you get a chance to visit. Nice. However, I don't think the beauty and awesomeness of Newcastle is what you're wanting to discuss. So the suburb of Scottswood was very evident in the facts of the high crime and alcoholism rates and the high unemployment. There were about 17,000 people there. Unemployment rates were over 50%. There were streets of rundown council houses and an industrial wasteland by the Tyne River known as the Tin Lizzie. Scottswood was a close-knit community where everyone knew one another and at least tolerated one another. They were wary of strangers, but the children were free to roam, even when very young. On Saturday, May 11, 1968, a three-year-old boy was discovered wandering, dazed, and bleeding. He said he'd been playing with two girls, Mary Bell and Norma Bell, who were not related but were best friends, on top of a disused air raids shelter where he'd been pushed off. It was a seven-foot drop, from the roof to the ground, and he received a severe laceration to his head. He told the police he wasn't sure which one of them pushed him. Mary Bell, 10 at the time, lived in the neighborhood with her three siblings and parents, Betty and Billy. 
14-year-old Norma Bell lived down the street with her parents and 10 siblings. Mary would later remember being fascinated by the family having 11 children in a home that had a kitchen, scullery, bathroom, and living room downstairs and three bedrooms and a lavatory upstairs. She said, they were good people, you know. I got to like her mother a lot. I can't imagine how she managed. She must have worked her fingers to the bone. And she was nice, you know. That evening, the parents of three small girls contacted the police to say that Mary and Norma had both attempted to strangle their children as they played in the sand pit. Both girls denied the air raid shelter incident, saying they had simply found the boy after he'd fallen. When asked about the strangulation incident, Mary denied any knowledge. Norma, however, said, Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up and Mary did the same thing to her. Police notified local authorities of the incident, but since the girls were so young, they were given a warning and no further action was taken. Social services did not act as the reports had not been substantiated. On Saturday, May 25th, 1968, Martin Brown was four years, two months old. He was a sturdy little boy with blonde hair and blue eyes and a round, mischievous face. He lived with his parents, June, who he called Ma'am, and his dad, whom he called Jordy, along with his one-year-old sister, Linda. That morning, his parents slept in, so he brought Linda a piece of bread and some milk. He then dressed her and brought her to June before having his breakfast. The last time June saw him, he was leaving the house saying, I'm away, Ma'am. Ta-ra, Jordy. Two workmen from Newcastle Electricity Board who were disconnecting power cables from derelict houses, saw him as he stood watching them work. They gave him a cookie, and he eventually went on his way. June's sister, Rita, who he called Fida, lived down the street. He woke her up that morning, and she gave him an egg on toast, and he left. She later said, We didn't think to watch them when they came and went, you know. All the kids were all over the place. Martin, everybody was his friend. At around 3 p.m., Doherty saw Martin at Dixon's shop when he came in for money for a lollipop. Rita saw him again when he came to ask her for bread and butter, though she sent him away angry as she told him butter was reserved for tea time. At 3.30 p.m., three schoolboys found Martin in the back bedroom of a derelict house. He was lying on his back on the rubble-covered floor, arms outstretched with blood and saliva coming from his mouth. There were no signs of a struggle or a fall, and his clothing was not torn or damaged. He didn't have any broken bones, and the only external injury he had was a bruise on his knee. One workman went to call the ambulance and one gave him mouth to mouth. Shouting all along the street brought June and Rita running. The ambulance arrived in a matter of minutes. Police originally thought it was an accidental poisoning because there were empty pill bottles scattered on the floor in the room. On May 26, 1968, Mary turned 11. She and Norma broke in and vandalized a nursery in Woodland Crescent. They peeled tiles off the slate roof to gain access to the building. They tore up books, overturned desks, and smeared poster paint and ink all over before they escaped. The next day, staff discovered what had happened and immediately called the police, who discovered four separate notes that claimed responsibility of Martin's murder. Because of the way the notes were written, the police dismissed the incident as a tasteless, childish prank. On May 29, 1968, just before Martin's funeral, Norma and Mary were playing a game of chicken. Both called June, asking to see her son. When June replied, saying they couldn't see him because he was deceased, Mary replied, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. Nine weeks after Martin Brown was found deceased, it was July 31st, 1968. Brian Howe was three years, four months old. 
He had fine curly blonde hair, a pink and white complexion, and was still in babyhood. He lived with his father, Eric, older brother, Albert, who was dating a girl named Irene that spent a lot of time there, 16-year-old sister, Pat, 7-year-old brother, Norman, and they had a black and white dog named Lassie. Brian's mother had left when he was a year and a half old. However, between Albert, Pat, Irene, and Rita, June's sister, whose three-year-old son, John, was his best friend, Brian was well taken care of. That morning was a school holiday. When Rita went by to pick Brian up, no one answered, so she took her son to the nursery without him. By lunchtime, Brian and John had met up and were playing together. Rita went looking for them around 1.30 p.m. and found them sitting on the ground watching workmen pull down an old house. Rita said, I went mad. I screamed at the men and said, didn't they know better than to let them sit there where they could get hurt. And then I hit the lads so hard, one after the other, my hands were stinging. Put John to bed and I gave Brian some biscuits and told him to tell Pat that he'd been to the old buildings, but that she was not to hit him because he, I'd already hit him. That's the last I saw him. That day, Irene was at the house while Pat had gone to the city with some friends. She came back around 3.20 p.m. and Irene said Brian was playing out the back. A number of children said they'd seen him outside playing in the street on and off with Norman and two little girls on bikes who they all knew. Lassie was with him but was known for being all over the place. Around 5 p.m., Pat had prepared tea and called for him as she went down the street. Mary was sitting on a neighbor's doorstep talking to them. Pat had gone to the city with the neighbor's sister earlier. Pat asked Mary if she'd seen Brian, and she said no, but that she'd help look for him. Norma also came along for a while to help look. They stopped at Davy's shop, which was a magnet for kids. Then they went to the Vickers Armstrong parking lot and finally up to the railway bridge, but they didn't find him. Mary suggested that he might be between the quote-unquote slabs, which were huge concrete slabs. Norma, who babysat for Rita and knew Brian, said, oh no, he never goes there. And Pat agreed that he wouldn't go there alone. They went to Holden Park, and by 7 p.m. they still hadn't found him, so they went to the police. Using searchlights, they located Brian at 11.10 p.m. Rita said, we'd all been looking for him for hours, hundreds of us it seemed till it got dark. It was very hot that night. I think everybody was still up when we heard the police cars rushing down with all the sirens going. People called to each other out their doors. I don't know who knew it first. It went from street to street and house to house. Mary, who was a light sleeper, came down at 11.30 and went outside where Billy was standing watching the commotion. She asked, what's going on then? Billy replied, they found Brian Howe over on the Tin Lizzie. Mary simply replied with, oh. Brian was found on the ground between two concrete blocks covered in a long carpet of purple weeds and grass. He was fully dressed, left arm stretched out from his body, and hand black with dirt. His lips were blue, there were scratch marks on his nose, and a blood-stained froth at his mouth. Pressure marks and scratches were on both sides of his neck, and there were other small, inexplicable injuries to his legs. Bits of his hair had been cut off. This was definitely not accidental. A pair of scissors were found nearby. One blade had been broken and the other bent back. The coroner reported that this was a murder, and due to the similarities in the deaths of children, Martin's case was reopened. They concluded that these murders were likely done by a child. This sparked a large-scale manhunt for a child murderer. So the idea of child murderers is something that is kind of hard for people to grasp, I think. And I think that's one of the reasons that it 
took two murders before the police were open to to looking at this. Hmm. I mean, originally they didn't even think the first boy was necessarily murdered. Right. Maybe if a proper autopsy had been done, this could have been discovered. But in the grand scheme of things, child murders are it's so horrific because it's something that we don't expect. In researching this case, I was morbidly fascinated by the idea of it. So I did some digging and by count, there have been 246 child murders uh, aged one to 17. So yeah, the, the youngest child murderer ever was supposedly in Uzhvirbas, Hungary. And it was an unnamed girl. She was one year old. And in January of 1938, apparently she killed someone, though I don't know how that would have been done. There's no real explanation about it. There's no name given. They don't know if what happened. Is she deceased? Is she alive? Um, The next youngest, there are two three-year-olds. An unnamed boy, and then a Ms. Yapasa. Ms. Yapasa was born in 1902, 19, or 1903. One of the two, they're not sure. And she is now deceased, but she was from Benwood, West Virginia. The unnamed three-year-old boy that committed a murder on December 30th of 1892 was actually from Gol, Norway. The only thing that's known about him is that he is, in fact, deceased. So... Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. I, I wonder how much of this is not necessarily murder, but maybe an accident or whatnot, simply yeah. because the age is so young. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's 246, 246 children murderers that I was able to positively identify. So crazy. it's it's absolutely, it's absolutely crazy. But it sparked this large-scale manhunt when did they actually start and how like how large of an investigation was this? So by August 2nd, 1968, over 100 detectives were assigned to the investigation and more than 1,200 children were questioned about their whereabouts. On August 1st, 1968, Mary and Norma were questioned. Witnesses had told investigators that they'd seen the girls with Brian before he went missing. Norma was excitable, but Mary was more observant and didn't say much. Both admitted to playing with Brian the day he died, but stated that they didn't see him after lunchtime. Mary was questioned the following day, and she said she remembered seeing a local eight-year-old boy playing with Brian that afternoon, and that she remembered him hitting the child. She also said that she saw Brian was covered in grass and weeds like he'd been rolling in a field, and that he had a small pair of scissors. She stated, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with him. One leg was broken or bent. This was self-incriminating as... Only police knew about the broken scissors found at the scene. Detective Chief Inspector DCII James Dobson was convinced that Mary was the actual killer. Police did question the boy that she stated she saw, but he was at the airport the afternoon the crime took place, and this was corroborated both by his parents and several witnesses. In the afternoon of August 4, 1968, Norma's parents called the police, stating that their daughter wanted to confess what she knew of the death of Brian Howe. DCI Dobson went to their home, formally cautioned Norma, and then asked her to speak about what she knew. Norma told DCI Dobson that Mary had taken her to the area of the Tin Lizzie and had shown her Brian's body, then demonstrated how she'd strangled him. 
According to Norma, Mary confessed that she enjoyed strangling the child, then described how she had inflicted the scour marks on his stomach with a razor blade that had been hidden at the crime scene, as well as the broken scissors. Norma led the police to the crime scene and showed them where the razor blade was hidden. She also made drawings of the wounds inflicted to the boy's abdomen when they matched what was described by the coroner. Early on August 5, 1968, the police visited Mary at her home. She was noticeably defensive when confronted with the discrepancies in her prior statement and said, you're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Later that day, Norma was questioned again. This time she made a full statement and admitted to being there when Mary had actually strangled Brian. She stated that when the three were alone on the Tin Lizzie, Mary's quote unquote seemed to go all funny, pushing Brian into the grass and attempting to strangle him. Then Mary said, my hands are getting thick, take over. Norma then ran from the scene, leaving them alone together. Forensics examined the clothing owned by both girls. Gray fibers on Brian's body were a precise match to a wool dress that Mary owned. They also found the same fibers on Martin's body. The maroon fibers on Brian's shoes were a match to a skirt Norma owned. So this is forensic fiber analysis, which they're using to confirm that the girls were at the scene of the crime when it took place or at least in the vicinity of the boy. It gives them a bit of evidence at that time. So fiber analysis is a method of identifying and examining fibers, and it's used by law enforcement agencies all over the world to procure evidence during an investigation. Now, fiber analysis is also used by law enforcement agencies to place suspects at the scene of the crime, which is what we're seeing here. So transfer of fiber can occur during close contact with the victim or the suspect. Fiber transfers can also occur during break-ins where fibers are caught on different articles of, of furniture or whatnot. And it's an example of trace evidence. This means it will likely be very small. Sometimes it could even be microscopic. There are three different methods, but the method that they're using here is what's called comparison microscopy. So comparison microscopes are often used by analysts to look at the general characteristics of the fibers. And this technique is generally only useful when you're comparing a known sample from a scene to a possible source. So in this case, the gray fibers found on the boy compared to the dress that Mary was wearing, or the fibers on the shoes compared to the dress that Norma was wearing. So the other way that they can look at this is like small frays or cuts or striations to see if they match and whatnot, or just the general shapes within the fiber. The comparison microscope allows for the two samples to be observed simultaneously. So even back then, in at this time, the microscopes were there so that they could do this kind of close analysis to see if these threads are actually lining up or if they're not. So it's not super conclusive evidence. It, it is pretty damning. So what happened to Brian? Brian Howe was buried in a local cemetery on August 7, 1968. Over 200 people attended the ceremony. Mary stood outside Howe residence and waited until the coffin was brought out, then began laughing. DCI Dobson stated she stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one. DCI Dobson planned on arresting both girls that day and did so at 8 p.m. Mary was callous and said, that's all right by me. Norma burst into tears and said, I never, I'll pay you back for this. Mary prepared a written statement in the presence of an independent witness, stating that she had been present during the Brian Howe murder, but that Norma had been the one to commit it. 
She also admitted that they had broken into the nursery the day after the Martin Braun murder, defacing property and writing the notes. After their arrest, both girls had psychological evaluations performed on them. Norma was revealed to be intellectually delayed, submissive, and easily displayed emotion. Mary was bright and cunning, prone to sudden mood swings. She was willing to talk, though rapidly becoming sullen, introspective, and defensive. The four psychologists who examined Mary concluded that she didn't have a mental disorder and that she suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder. The term psychopath is typically not used to describe children and is highly questioned by most specialists. The psychologists also didn't know anything about Mary's upbringing, which could have swayed their diagnosis. So this is deep. You mentioned Mm -hmm. that they don't often say that children are psychopaths. This is true, and I'll get into a little bit deeper meaning of or deeper reasoning of why in a moment but the long and short of it is is that the child's brain is often not developed enough for certain tests to be run in order to be sure of this the thing with with it is we have observed in the in the past there there have been studies of certain children that do match the tendencies of psychopaths but the problem is, is a lot of times when it comes to children, it's hard to say, are they psychopathic or are they sociopathic? Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, there is a, a very, very, very important distinction between the two. There is a very, very famous case of a Canadian girl named Beth Thomas. And that was one of the biggest questions was, was she truly a psychopath or was she a sociopath? Because psychopathy is an innate antisocial tendency. It's a biological condition, right? In which certain areas of the brain don't activate, especially associated with impulses and emotions and and decision making. Whereas sociopathy is, you know, the environment plays a very important role. So as you had brought up, if the psychologist had been aware of her upbringing, I don't think that they would have diagnosed her with psychopathic tendencies i think they would have seen more sociopathic tendencies right and again it is very very important because one when you remove the child or the individual from the environment and you treat them through through medicine through counseling through different methods one can be treated and again we'll delve into this further and further but i i do think that this was And I am not a doctor. This isn't my field of expertise. But I do a lot of research and I do a lot of reading and I can see similarities between certain cases. And if you if you haven't heard of Beth Thomas, I definitely, definitely recommend checking it out. There was a documentary called Child of Rage. And the similarities between these two girls is very, very strong. So just keep an open mind on that when you're looking into it. The neuroscience behind psychopathy provides information to answer questions to help better understand the disorder and getting really technical with it in this field it states that there is a reduced response from the amygdala in younger people with the presence of emotional sense insensitivity trait and therefore they score higher in psychopathy than they normally would it's an unusual response and it's also found in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex So what they do with kids a lot of times, because they can't rely on these brain scans and whatnot, is they rely on these questionnaires. 
which required the kids to answer questions a certain way. But again, they're not taking into account the environment that these children were raised in and what they have been exposed to, which could impact the answers that they give. Whereas with a true psychopath, these answers are permanent and immovable. Whereas with these children who are suffering from a sociopathological disorder, these are temporary answers that can be changed through environmental change, therapy, medication, and so on. So it's, it's definitely something that is, that is deep and there's a lot to take in. So you said that the psychologist didn't know about Mary's upbringing. Can you give us some insight into it? Yes. Mary was born on May 26, 1957, to a 17-year-old known sex worker named Betty. When the hospital staff tried to give her newborn to her, Betty screamed, take that thing away from me. Ten months later, Betty was two months pregnant when she married Billy Bell, a large man who was known by police to be both a drunkard and an aggressive robber, who Mary looked up to. The two had three children together, and by September 1966, Mary's birth certificate was re-registered, listing Billy as the father. This is a pretty rare procedure that can take the place of formal adoption and provide a child with a birth certificate listing a mother and a father, where normally the father's name would be blank. In the first four years of Mary's life, Betty tried repeatedly to rid herself of her unwanted child. Numerous times, she tried to hand her over to relatives, and twice she tried to hand her over to strangers. According to Mary, four times she tried to kill her. Three times, Betty's older sister, Kath, and her husband were so concerned that they asked to adopt Mary or to foster her until she was out of school. Between the ages of four and eight, Betty was an active sex worker, and Mary experienced extreme child sexual abuse. In 1968, the age of criminal responsibility was 10 years old. Betty and Billy tried to sell Mary's story to tabloids, saying, We tried to teach her right, but we couldn't do a thing with her. The tabloids rejected it. The girls underwent a nine-day trial together where they had not prepared for the solemnity of the trial. The adults spoke in their judicial language, and according to Mary later, no one told them anything. At the start of the trial, December 5th, 1968, Norma and Mary laughed in excitement, but that would be the only time they did so during the next nine days. Norma was terrified, but Mary was fascinated by the court, an obvious juxtaposition between them. Both wore immaculately clean and ironed cotton dresses, white socks, and polished shoes. Norma was taller and physically more developed. She had a round face that looked perpetually puzzled and garnered sympathy for her often visible distress. Norma's parents supported her in court, often consoling her when she burst into tears. Her 10 siblings, from the oldest 16-year-old handicapped brother to the youngest baby, waited outside court every day to wave to her. Mary was much smaller, with a heart-shaped face and bright blue eyes. Her grandmother and aunts and uncles were there to support her, along with her parents. Betty often made a spectacle of herself, exclaiming and sobbing. She would march out of court on clicking high heels, then return a short while later just as loudly. She wore a bright blonde wig that often fell askew, showing her jet black hair that matched her daughter's. Billy sat hunched over, arms on knees, hiding his face. Except for what seemed to be an obligatory kiss upon leaving, Betty only comforted Mary when she knew someone was watching. Billy was gentler, hugging and kissing her every time he came and went. Mary, who almost always turned her head away at affection, clung to him, and she later stated she was scared of her mother during the trial. At first, Betty was absent from the initial court hearings. In fact, three social workers had to drive to Glasgow to get her from a pub, then practically drag her back, kicking and screaming, to support her daughter. 
The first time Betty saw her daughter, Mary stated later, she came to see me, I think it was at the cells at West End Police, and she was totally hysterical, shouting at me, what had I done to her this time, having people track her down? It was all my fault, and what a shameful thing I was in her life. During the trial, Norma often squirmed in her seat, looking around the court, and tried to turn to speak to her mother. She had a short attention span, only being able to pay attention for a few minutes at a time. Mary, however, was attentive. She hardly seemed to notice her mother's antics, and she didn't seem puzzled or distressed. Generally speaking, she seemed to carry intense interest, though she came across as emotionless unless she was angry. The two young defendants were given a court-appointed solicitor and barristers. Norma, who was represented by R.P. Smith, Queen's Counsel, QC, who persuaded a judge to have her spend the period of her remand being observed in a nearby hospital. Mary received no such treatment. She was represented by Harvey Robson, QC. She was first sent to an assessment center near London and then to a local remand home in Seam, run by a prison department for girls between age 14 to 18. In cases of children accused of serious crime in Britain, it is very unusual for psychiatrists to be involved as they were in Norma's case prior to the trial. Despite protests from both girls' defense counsels, on the first day of the trial, a judge waived their rights to anonymity on account of their age. As a result, media was allowed to publicize their names, ages, and photos of the girls. So, anonymity is often extended to underage defendants, but even more so to underage victims. In the U.S., a lot of times you'll see name withheld because of age or whatnot. So, it wouldn't have been unheard of. The problem, I think, in this case was that it was fairly high profile by that point in time. They had announced that they were looking for kids. I think the problem here is that the ship had already sailed. But for those of you who don't know, anonymity in criminal cases means that someone's name, address, photo, and other information that might identify them, including school, place of work, church, anything along those lines is not revealed in the newspapers or on television or modern day on the internet. In court, anonymity is protected by reporting restrictions, Normally, there is an automatic ban on the identification of children in youth court proceedings. The problem was is that from the age of 10 on in Britain, you could be tried as an adult. So this is taking place in adult court, not in a children's court. Now, in the adult magistrate's court and the crown's court, a judge can decide whether or not to. This judge obviously decided not to. And that's not unheard of because criminal trials usually take place in an open court with the public knowing as much as possible about the case. There are special considerations that are sometimes given, but not always. And the reason is, is because if the defendant is a child, his or her future progress may well be harmed by giving out that information. So there are certain ways that you can get around it later in life, but that's their reasoning. What this judge did is not unprecedented, but it's not, I don't know that I necessarily agree with his decision. Right. So what happened next? So on behalf of the prosecution, Rudolph Lyons QC opened the case beginning at 1130 a.m. His opening statement lasted six hours, and he told the jury that they faced a quote-unquote unhappy and distressing task due to both the nature of the murders as well as the age of the defendants. Then he outlined the intent to illustrate similarities in both murders to show that they had been murdered by the same perpetrators. Lyons conceded that despite the girls' age differences, 
Mary was the most dominant, but both had acted together and were equally culpable. He stated that they both killed children, quote unquote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder. On the fifth day of the trial, December 12, 1968, Norma testified in her own defense. While she denied responsibility for the actual murder of either child, she did admit under cross-examination that she knew of Mary's penchant for violence and history of attacking children. She stated they had discussed attacking and killing small children of both genders. When Lyons asked whether or not Mary had demonstrated how children could be killed, Norma nodded. Then she said that as Mary had begun attacking and strangling Brian Howe, she had failed to alert a group of boys playing in the vicinity. She denied that she had ever touched the child. On December 13, 1968, Mary testified for her defense, which lasted over four hours. It was briefly adjourned when she began crying in the policewoman's arms. She denied Norma's events, insisting that she had seen Martin Brown's body but had never harmed him. She admitted to playing the game of chicken where they called June to ask to see the boy. When questioned about the death of Brian Howe, Mary claimed that Norma had been the one to strangle him and said she was, quote-unquote, just standing and looking. I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down. Mary said Norma encouraged Brian to lie down if he wanted sweets before beginning to strangle him with her bare hands as she attempted to prevent the attack. Mary said that she could see the amount of force Norma was using because her fingertips and nails were going white. She said she never informed the authorities because she was afraid and had a misguided sense of loyalty. Norma's mother, Catherine, testified that several months before Brian's death, she and her husband had discovered Mary attempting to strangle one of their daughters. She stated that she only released her grip after her husband punched Mary in the shoulder. Okay, so I think that we can agree here that what we're seeing is kind of a pattern of events here Mm -hmm. with Mary acting out violently, the little boy that was pushed, the little girls that were strangled, her strangling the sibling of her best friend. You can see how this is escalating, and there are so many points that we can look to now. And yes, I know hindsight is 2020. But there were so many things that at any point in time, an authority figure or an adult stepping in and removing her from the situation could have saved the lives of these two little boys. And we talk about it. We talk about on on the show often how it just takes one person to say something to prevent a tragedy because there are often patterns and series of events that play out that we can see and for me that makes this even more tragic this little girl was so hell-bent on hurting somebody that an adult man had to punch her off of his daughter right and after that they continued to let their daughter associate with this girl as well Mm -hmm. so again no the death of these two little boys is not on Norma's parents per se, but I wonder how much guilt they carried on as a result because they didn't speak up or they didn't step in when they could have. Right. So you did mention that these girls were seen by psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. What did they find? So Ian Frazier, a child psychiatrist, testified that Norma's mental age was at eight years, 10 months. He stated that although her capacity of knowing right from wrong was limited, she was capable of understanding the criminality of the acts she was accused of committing. On December 13, 1968, Norma's defense counsel delivered his closing argument to the jury. Smith emphasized that while the girls were on trial together, 
There was no real evidence to tie Norma to the crimes aside from Mary's word. He asked the jurors to suppress their feelings and not believe that both girls should pay for the actions of one of them. Then Robson delivered his closing argument on behalf of Mary. He mentioned her broken background and dysfunctional family, as well as the blur between reality and fantasy in her mind. Robson also mentioned David Westbury's testimony, who had interviewed Mary several times prior to the trial and stated that she suffered from a serious personality disorder caused by both genetic and environmental factors, thus impairing her actual responsibility for her acts. Referencing the notes the girls had left in the nursery after the Martin Brown murder, Robson said the notes proved that the crimes were childish fantasy and in Mary's case were used to attract attention to herself. In his closing argument, Lyons argued that Mary was clearly the more domineering of the two and called the case macabre and grotesque. He noted that Norma was of subnormal intelligence. He then outlined the numerous lies Mary had told both to the police and in court, noting her lack of remorse. On December 17, 1968, the jury joined together and only deliberated for three hours and 25 minutes before reaching verdicts. Norma was acquitted of all charges, and she clapped her hands in excitement. Mary was not convicted of murder, but of manslaughter of both boys based on the grounds of diminished responsibility. She burst into tears, and her grandmother also wept. So I feel that it's kind of important at this point to define both murder and manslaughter and why it's important in this case in particular. So murder to the British courts specifically is defined as the deliberate killing of one human being by another. It is an act that is often deemed to be the most severe crime that one can commit, while manslaughter is the unlawful intentional killing of another human life. There are two classifications of manslaughter, voluntary and involuntary. What Mary is charged with is voluntary manslaughter, which is killing with intent, but without premeditation. And the reason that they brought this up for Mary is one, because of her reduced age and two, because of her psychological disorders, meaning that they didn't feel that she was capable of the premeditation that they would have thought necessary for murder. Also important to note that at this point in time, the death penalty in the United Kingdom was suspended at this time, but it wasn't abolished. It had been it was suspended in 1965 for five years initially, and then indefinitely. The last people executed in the UK were in 1964, so just four years before this, and it was officially made illegal in the UK in 1998. So since she was being tried by an adult, this was also a a way that they could protect her from the more serious punishments of murder since she is still a child and she would still go through a development stage. And in this case, she would be more or less a ward of the state. And it it was a way to also ensure that at some point in time, if she rehabilitated, that she would be able to rejoin society. So. Since she was convicted, what was her sentence? So Justice Cusack passed the sentence of detainment at, quote-unquote, Her Majesty's pleasure, effectively an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. He described her as a dangerous person, stating that she posed a very grave risk to other children and steps must be taken to protect the public from her. This is a really interesting thing, saying at her majesty's pleasure or now at his majesty's pleasure sometimes it's abbreviated to the king's pleasure or the queen's pleasure depending on what 
the ruling monarch is, but it's a legal term of art referring to the indeterminate or undetermined length of service a certain appointed official or sentence of some prisoners. So this can be given not just in punishment, but also for people in service to the crown. So governors, general, ministers, things of that nature in Canada, provisional lieutenant governors are appointed by the Canadian monarch's representative. Same in Australia for the Commonwealth. For incarcerations, though, it's used to describe the detention in prison for an indefinite length of time. So a judge can rule this for serious offenses or if it's based on a successful insanity defense. So in this case, you're kind of seeing a mixture of the two. She's not insane, but they don't know how long her rehabilitation is going to take. So it's also used if they feel like there's a great risk of reoffending, as in this case. And it was really, really common to be used for juvenile offenders, usually as a substitute for a life sentence. So prisoners held at their majesty's pleasure are periodically reviewed to determine whether their sentence can be deemed complete. And while this power traditionally rested with the monarch themselves, such reviews are now made by the secretary of state for justice or whatnot. Minimum terms are usually also set before which a prisoner can be released. So it's kind of similar to our parole system. You'd be sentenced to life with parole. So these were originally set by the Home Secretary, but since the 30th of November in 2000, they are set by a trial judge. The trial judge actually makes the decision, okay, you have to serve at least five years, 10 years, whatever. But prisoners' sentences are typically deemed to be complete when the reviewing body is satisfied that there's been a significant change in the offender's attitude or behavior. So for the Americans out there, think of it like a parole board with an indefinite sentence if you never get better. Can you remind me, how old was she actually at the time of her conviction? At the time of her conviction, she was 11 years, six months old. This made her Britain's youngest female killer. And that's still a statistic that remains to this day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Mary was initially detained in a Durham remand home before being transferred to another remand home in South Norwood. She was then transferred to a young offenders institution called Red Bank, where she lived in their secure unit. In early 1969, she was the only female with approximately 24 inmates. Bell later stated that she was 13 and sexually abused by a member of staff and several inmates. In November 1973, at age 16, she was transferred to a secure wing of HM Prison Style in Cheshire. She reportedly resented the transfer and unsuccessfully applied for parole. In June 1976, Mary was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison. She took a secretarial course while there. In September 1977, she made national headlines again when she and another inmate escaped the prison. They spent several days in the company of two young men in Blackpool. There they visited amusements and slept in various local hotels. Mary used the alias Mary Robinson before she and fellow escapee parted ways. On September 13, 1977, Mary was arrested in the Derbyshire home of one of the men. She had dyed her hair blonde in an attempt to disguise her identity. She was returned to custody and the other escapee was arrested in Leeds days later. Her penalty for escaping was a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. Later, she stated, Since my parole was turned down in July or August of 1977, and I haven't been given any release date, I felt rather depressed. I wanted to prove to the authorities that I am stabilized and given the opportunity I could lead a normal life just like anyone else. 
this happened 10 years ago, although the truth didn't come out in court, is something that I will have to live with for the rest of my life, and no amount of years in prison is going to erase it from my mind. She also said, I took a life, but not in the savage way the press made it out to be. At the age of 10, I did not realize the meaning of death. In June 1979, the Home Office announced that they would transfer Mary to HM Prison Askham Grange, an open prison, where she would prepare for release into society the next year. In November 1979, Mary worked as a secretary, then as a waitress in a cafe under supervision guidelines in an attempt to prepare her for a release. After almost 11 and a half years in custody, Mary was released in May 1980 at the age of 23. She was granted anonymity, which included a new name, allowing her to start a new life elsewhere in the country under an assumed identity. She became pregnant upon release and had an abortion, vowing to give birth to the next child. Mary got married, and on May 25, 1984, she gave birth to a daughter, her only child. She had a hysterectomy in 1985 to remove suspected cancer. Her marriage ended soon after, and she found a new husband. Her daughter knew nothing of her past until 1998, when news media discovered her location and forced them to be driven to a safe house by undercover officers. They relocated to another part of the UK. The right to anonymity granted to Mary's daughter after her birth originally only extended until she turned 18. On May 21, 2003, Mary won a case to have her own anonymity, as well as that of her daughter, extended for life. This was later updated to include Mary's granddaughter, who was born in January of 2009 and was referred to as Z. The court also prohibits the divulging of any aspects of their lives that may identify them. Norma lived a relatively quiet life after the crimes and passed away in 1989 after a battle with cancer. Mary maintained little contact with her mother in the years after her release. Betty passed away in 1994, though it is not known exactly when she died. She was last seen on New Year's Eve and neighbors called the police on January 3rd. When police entered her home, they found Betty nude in her chair, very close to the gas fire, which had been on and burned one side of her. Her cause of death was listed as pneumonia. She'd had some sort of attack, gotten up, cleared the sheets off the bed, leaving them and her nightdress in a pile on the bathroom floor. Then she'd given herself a bath or sponge bath and sat down in the chair where she then passed. Mary and her family's whereabouts are currently unknown and remain protected by the high order. According to Geta Sereni, who had interviewed Mary extensively, stated that Mary does not claim that she was wrongly convicted and freely admits that the abuse she suffered as a child does not excuse any of her crimes. This case is one that I find to be incredibly tragic. I feel very, very deep sorrow for the mm -hmm. two boys' families. They didn't deserve to go through the suffering that they've gone through. Great. I know that the mothers have spoken out rather vocally about when Mary was released. They didn't think that that was fair since they wouldn't have their children anymore. I understand their, their anger and their frustration, mm -hmm. but I also can't ignore the environment that Mary Bell was subjected to when she was very, very young. And to say that I feel that while, of course, it does not excuse any of her crimes, just like she said, I will say that she has owned up to her crimes. She sure. understands that what she did was wrong. But I'm also going to say that at 10, 11 years old, having suffered everything that she had, I think that it's very, very hard to fully condemn her for life. Mm -hmm. She seems to have definitely turned her life around. 
She's, as far as we can tell, been a productive member of society. She's a mother now and a grandmother. I think that the fact that she cut ties with her toxic mother shows how much of an impact her mother had on her childhood in a negative way. Mm -hmm. So this case to me is one that is probably so far our most complicated. Yeah. And I definitely recommend that our listeners do their own deep dives into some of these things. There's several good documentaries and several good videos out there that, that talk about Mary Bell. She's probably the most famous case that we've done to date and definitely one of the most misunderstood. It's very easy to just point at someone and say what you did was wrong without delving into the the why this happened in the first place. So I'll not go too much further into that. I think I've given a lot of my (laughs) opinions so far, but please, if you have a chance do some more research. In fact, as I recall, Rebel, didn't you read a very interesting book about this case? I did. I actually read Geddes Arani's Cries and Heard Why Children Kill, the story of Mary Bell. And it was really interesting. It, there's a lot of interesting quotes by Mary, a lot of different facets of information that I didn't have enough. There was too much to include here, but it was a really interesting read, so I highly suggest it. Well, this case was obviously one that was near and dear to you and doing that amount of research my hat my hat's off to you on it and dear listeners take some time read the book apparently it's it's rather good i'll be sitting down with it myself so yeah we we actually do research these things before we put them on the air <laughs> yes a lot so i think that might bring us to our missing person of the week who do we yes. have this week this week, we look at Ida Beard, who was age 29 when she went missing on June 30th, 2015 in El Reno, Oklahoma. She's 5'5", five five, 120 pounds, and has black hair and brown eyes. She's Native American and has pierced ears. She's a mother of four, a citizen of the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe, and was last seen leaving her home where she lived with her blind mother. She stated she was going to visit some friends who lived nearby but never returned. Ida's mother reported her missing, and investigators originally theorized that she left on her own accord. In fact, it would take two weeks until July 15, 2015, for the police to even open a missing persons case. Per El Reno Police Department Major Kirk Dickerson, all we know is that she was seen leaving, reportedly walking home, and then she never made it. Ida's cousin, Lorenda Morgan, explained that she wouldn't just leave loved ones or her of her own accord. She's just so attached to her mother and children. Following Ida's disappearance, Morgan began to try to do something about the estimated hundreds of missing and murdered indigenous people across Oklahoma. On November 1st, 2021, more than six years after Ida vanished, the bill known as Ida's Law went into effect. The law called for the creation of the Office of Liaison for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons within the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. The goal is for the office to work across jurisdictions, including tribal, to investigate unsolved cases and create a case tracking system. So Ida's law is a really, really, really good idea. The idea behind it is that it was intended to improve coordination between law enforcement entities working on cases involving missing or murdered indigenous peoples living in Oklahoma, while also assigning a point person to work closely with the family members of the victims. 
The reason this is important is because indigenous people face higher rates of violence than Caucasians in the area. Four out of five Native American adults have experienced some form of violence in their lifetime, with 56% of indigenous women facing sexual violence. And this is according to the National Institute of Justice. This isn't something that I just made up on the spot. Now, the families of those who have been killed or have gone missing often have to navigate a very complex jurisdictional maze when seeking answers and help from law enforcement because of the independence of the reservations and their law enforcement agencies, county sheriffs, local law enforcement. It it can really become incredibly difficult to get the answers that you're seeking. Now, Ida's law is a perfect case study of something that is a great idea, but that has been very, very poorly executed. So it's been two years since Oklahoma lawmakers passed this bipartisan legislation to identify the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people. But to this day, state law enforcement entities have not secured federal funding to carry out the new law. So the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation has appointed one agent to tackle these cases, but he's only there part time. If they had dedicated funding, they would be able to have more agents. So the thing is, is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation estimates that there are at least 500 cases of missing or murdered indigenous people in Oklahoma alone. And that is according to the database that this agency has helped compile it following the passage of Ida's law. In the original draft of Ida's law, which was introduced in 2019, it actually didn't mention anything about seeking federal money for the OSBI to fund this new office. Now, that was amended by a Republican lawmaker that was serving at the time. So at the time, the OSBI estimated that carrying out Ida's law would cost up to $385,000 annually if three agents were assigned. Now, the thing is, is Oklahoma right now has more than $4 billion in its state savings account. It's a record high. When Ida's law was passed, however, it was quite different. Oklahoma was recovering from a budget year in which most state agencies experienced cuts because of low oil prices during the COVID pandemic. However, Oklahoma has seriously bounced back. The reason, as far as we can tell, that they're not taking some of that $4 billion with a B and funding a less than half a million with an M agency to help indigenous peoples is because they're wanting to get federal grants, which were set aside by the Trump administrations exactly for it. Now, the Biden administration created the missing and murdered unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs to help with unsolved cases. But again, that's a federal law enforcement entity. So it's also trying to navigate those jurisdictional issues. So we're going to see how how it plays out. Lorenda Morgan, Ida's cousin that you mentioned earlier, has been very vocal and she is very much pushing for the addressing of this this crisis. She has said that the OSBI is doing well in the implementation of the spirit of Ida's law, but that dedicated funding would definitely help the agency out a lot. So because it requires a liaison to conduct law enforcement and community training sessions, dedicated funding would also help with that. But she says that 
she feels encouraged with the direction that they're going. It's also been backed by the Cherokee Nation's principal chief, Chuck Hoskins Jr. He says that even though it has been unable to get federal funding, that his tribe has worked well with this agency's liaison so far. We are seeing a promising move, but more needs to be done. And for those of our listeners that are listening in Oklahoma, contacting your your local representatives, not necessarily your federal congressmen and women, but your, your local state representatives, if you are able to do so, please do so. This mm-hmm. this law this law has a lot of potential and both sides are reaching out, but we need to help them understand that the funding is absolutely necessary. One agent working part time is is not going to be able to handle five hundred plus and growing missing and murdered people's cases. Yeah, that's not enough by a lot. So if people do have any information on Ida Beard, who should they call? If you have any information, please contact El Reno Police Department at 405-262-6941 or the Bureau of Indian Affairs by texting 847411 or calling 1-833-560-2065. Wow. Well, we definitely went through a lot this, this evening, Rebel. It was a lot. This case was very heavy and it was actually one of the first cases that I heard of that got me interested in true crime. It's such a fascinating case to me and also our missing persons case this evening Yes. and the implementation of the laws. I, I really feel like this evening has kind of been kind of an emotional roller coaster. I've felt sadness. I felt anger. I've felt relief. There's just tonight's been a night. <laughs> Yes. Well, if our listeners are so inclined to tell their friends and family they should listen to our humble podcast, where should they tell them to listen in on? So we're on Podbean. We can also be found on most of the major platforms like Spotify and Apple and Amazon. And we can always be reached at murderosity at gmail.com if you have any cases or missing persons or interesting cases or anything. We have quite a few coming up that are listener requested. You can find us on all the social medias at murderosity or murderosity podcast. Wow. Well, that was that was a good one. Please, listeners, tell your friends and family to come give us a listen. We'll help spread the holiday cheer with our uplifting podcast, of course. And we hope to catch you next week as well. All right. Be safe out there, everyone. Happy holidays, and we'll catch you next week.